Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-supported community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. Well, I hope your 2022 is off to a good start, and I'm going to do what I can today to help that be the case by dialing up one of my favorite shows from a little over a year ago. It's a conversation with Amy Nizuku Matatil about her enchanting and stimulating collection of illustrated nature essays called World of Wonders, in praise of fireflies, whale sharks, and other astonishments. Published by the good people at Milkweed Editions, it was named Book of the Year by Barnes & Noble and was a finalist for the Kirkus Prize in nonfiction. And Amy met two of the criteria as a former badger who was at the Wisconsin Book Festival. If you took Aldo Leopold's expert eye for nature and Marcel Proust's ability to evoke memory out of experience and filtered it all through a poet and essayist who is the daughter of a Filipina mother and South Indian father, you might come close to what Amy Nizukumata-Till has accomplished in World of Wonders. Born in Chicago in 1974, she lived as a child in Iowa, Arizona, Kansas, New York, and Ohio, received her undergraduate and master's degrees in poetry and nonfiction from The Ohio State University, was awarded a poetry fellowship to the University of Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing, spent 14 years teaching in Western New York, and in 2016 accepted appointment as professor of English and creative writing in the MFA program at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, where her husband, the essayist Dustin Parsons, also teaches. Since 2003, she has published four collections of poetry and a chapbook of garden poems with the poet Ross Gay and has been included in several collections and anthologies. She has been awarded a poetry fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Pushcart Prize, and a 2020 Guggenheim Fellowship in Poetry, among other honors. It is a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Amy Nizukumatatil. Hello. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, thanks for being here, Amy. And I hope you don't mind that I used two dead white males as a shorthand to convey the book's concept about nature and memory and, and what it meant to me. But as an old white male myself, Leopold and Proust are two of the lodestars in the literary firmament that I'm still dealing with. And maybe in a few years, a new generation will compare them to you. Uh, so I hope that's okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it's... Um... That's what I, I grew up reading, reading them too, you know, and it's, um, that's the realities of what the world of publishing was like back then. And, and, you know, and I'm just hoping to kind of broaden that conversation a little bit as well. Those were, you know, I didn't really see anybody that looked like me in libraries before, at least in the sections of nature and science writing that I haunted before. So no, I consider that an honor. And we'll talk about who you did and didn't see in pursuing nature in just a bit, but to start, one of the words that appears over and over in this book about 25 times apart from the title is the word wonder or some variation of it. What does wonder mean to you? Is it uncertainty? Is it curiosity? Is it amazement? Is it some combination of the three or something else entirely? Yeah, that's such a good question. You know, um, for me, and, and this is just for me, this is not the Webster's definition, you know, by any means, but for me, wonder means to elicit a curiosity and a hunger. And actually one of the roots of the word hunger means to smile. So I love that so much. It's, you know, it's not just, oh, being a nerd, you know, and wanting to know everything about the universe, but something that kind of brings you delight, something that brings a smile to your lips when you learn about, you know, little birds peeking out from under their mom's wings to memorize the star patterns at night, you know, that literally made me smile. And yet it also made me want to research a little bit more and read more about it. Can you teach someone how to view the world with wonder? I don't think you need to. I don't think you need to teach wonder because as a child, at least, I think we all have it. Now you could definitely create situations where wonderment is um, 
you're more likely to have wonderment. And maybe I think what for most grownups that I encounter, sometimes you just need a reminder of that child you were. You know, you never have to teach a kid to say, look, look, look at the moon, look at this leaf shaped like a bird, um, you know, things like that. But I think the easiest way I can explain it is that my kid, my boys are older now. They're 10 and 13. But when they were younger, actually still with my youngest, when we go out and take walks, our pockets are filled with things that we wanted to save, you know, an acorn, a special rock shaped like Florida. My parents live in Florida. You can teach people to remember what it's like to come to have filled po- uh, pockets. How about that? So like, I want, gr- I want people to be reminded of the kid they were with full pockets, wanting to save and savor and to learn more about the things that they observe outside. Is making sure your two sons don't lose that sense of wonder one of your prime directives as a mother? Oh, it's my number one um, directive, of course, to keep them safe and sound and healthy, but to absolutely keep that spark in their eyes, to keep that light in their eyes. Yeah. And, you know, and you can see that so many of the world's problems are stemming from that lack of imagination, that lack of wonderment about the world, because wonderment is contagious. Once you have wonder, you want to share it, you know, you want to say, look at this, did you see this flower? Did you see this perfect rose here? And that wonderment show is a way, is a pathway for recognizing the humanity in other, in other people, but also it becomes a tenderness and a love. You know, I mean, once you get to know about animals and plants that you maybe didn't know of before, you don't want to commit violence upon them. You don't want to, you know, I feel like the more you know about these creatures, the less violence and the less destruction you want to have. Yeah, I think it's of utmost importance. If you know the difference between a maple leaf and an oak leaf, you might care more about trees in in general, and then you'll care more about everything that affects them. Absolutely. I know it's, I know just on the surface, it sounds silly, but I see it all the time with my students here in Mississippi, Um, frat boys, um, business majors, people who think, oh, you know, this isn't for me. I don't have time for this. I'm not, you know, I'm not here to learn about trees. I take them on. um, We have what's called a campus tree walk where all um, Mississippi native trees have are, were planted on the University of Mississippi's campus. And um, they do their own little project, their own little natural history projects about them. And I can't even tell you, Stu, how many times they've come back to say, you know, I never noticed this catalpa tree before. I never noticed this Osage orange tree before. And this is the tree that I didn't know the name of it, but this was the tree that was growing in my grandmother's house, the one that I had a tire swing over. And it took me, you know, that person's grandmother is gone, but they they will never forget the Osage tree now, the Osage orange now, you know? So it's things like that where it's easy to give up and say, oh, there's a lot of hatefulness in the world. There's a lot of people who are too busy staring at their phones. But I think if you just remind them of what's out there, because I'm not a scientist, you know? Um, uh, But if you just remind them of their humanity and that kind of childlike wonderment, it's so contagious, you know, it's so contagious. Did you come by this wonderment and identity with nature naturally as a child, or to what extent did your parents inculcate it in you? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think, like I said, I think most kids have this sense of, um, of this wonder. The difference is, is I think my parents, and they would never consider themselves um, they didn't read literature, you know, very much. Um, we didn't have a whole lot of literature in our house. We had a whole bunch of science and a whole bunch of um, nature books. It was just part of our lives growing up, you know, no matter how busy they were. And they both worked long, long hours at the hospital. They always had time for the garden. They always had time to take us hiking. And so it just became, I just thought that's what kids did, you know? Um, so it wasn't until much later that I realized not everybody's parents were like that. Not everybody's parents spent all weekend in the garden and on road trips to go see fireflies, you know, things like that. And so, and, you know, and I, I want to be honest, you know, there's definitely times in middle school where the last thing I think a teenager wants to do is to hang out with their parents um, and go see fireflies. But I'm so glad grateful for those lessons. I'm so grateful for that time that my dad spent helping me memorize the, you know, the Arizona skyline of, um, of stars, you know, um, because those are, those were ended up being life lessons 
now as an adult that I can, I can be anywhere in this country and mostly know the stars in the sky, you know, and uh, that was, that was just ingrained upon us since, since I was so little, since five or six years old. A lot of the book reads as an extended thank you to them, almost to the point of it being a love letter to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, my parents will be the first to say they were not perfect by any means, but I think this is kind of almost like my big apology, you know, for, for those, maybe those tumultuous junior high years where a lot of eye rolls, lots of sighs, you know, like dad, not everybody, you know, not everybody cares, but you know, it's especially now during the pandemic, uh, my dad's in Florida. My mom is here with us now here in Mississippi. Um, and my dad will be joining us for hopefully Thanksgiving, but you know, just the other day, my dad sent me, um, a text on what to do if I ever get attacked by an elephant. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's these, they're so precious to me, you know, and that's just been my whole life of like um, w warnings, but also wonderment, you know, for as many warnings there are, there's 10, 10 wonderments. Did you see this plant? Look at this fruit. And he, he gave me the names of them, never made me feel stupid for asking more questions. In fact, he, he fed on that, you know, the more questions his daughters had, the more he came back with library books. And so it was, it, it was contagious. I wanted to be like my parents growing up. So even though as much as I rebelled against it, this was, this is kind of the result, you know, I think they would have preferred me going into medicine, following in their footsteps, but they actually gave me a whole nother world that I'm so grateful for. Now, you write that you think your parents had been pre preparing you to adapt to multiple terrains and to be able to feel at home wherever you were. But is that how you felt at the time? Because some of these moves, especially the one from New York to Ohio during your high school years, seem very emotionally disruptive. Were, are, are you feeling better about, the, about those moves retrospectively than you did at the time? Oh yeah, you know, I mean, definitely any, ask any kid who has to move between their sophomore and junior years and who had a lifetime of moving around, it wasn't ideal. I certainly never was like, yay, you know, and in fact, it was, as you mentioned in the book, it was the most troubling move I ever had to feel. It was gut-wrenching, you know, but I think in hindsight, I could never have written this book you know, even 20 years ago, it's taken me this this time and now as as a mother to a, t a young teen to kind of have that reflection and to have that time back that I'm sure that if you were to interview them, they would never say, oh, we planned this. It just happened to be like, this was the kind of the silver lining of it. There's really no situation. There's really no encounter that I don't feel like I'm prepared for. And it was ironically because I was uprooted so many times and placed in, in situations where I was alone or the only one that was Asian American or the only one Brown, frankly. And while I could see as a little girl, I could see how it was sometimes difficult for them. I could see, my, you know, my mother was the first doctor in her entire town, you know, her first, first woman doctor in her entire town. And then I'd go, I'd see, you know, cashiers and stuff talk to her like she was a child, like, do you understand English, you know, and she always comported herself with grace. She always had dignity. And but, you know, little Amy was like narrowing her eyes and, and seething on behalf of my parents who were being made fun of for their accents or stuff like that. So I think in some subliminal way, they were it was their way of saying like, I want you to feel confident in this country that they love so much. I want you to feel safe and secure. And the only way they knew how to do that was to bring us outside because outside was the place where nobody asked us, what am I, you know, what is your background? Why are you here? You know, things like that. So I, I'm sure that it was not deliberate in the slightest but it was the best silver lining um, that ended up happening. We're talking with Amy Nazuku Matatil. Her book is World of Wonders and Praise of Fireflies, Whale Sharks, and Other Astonishments. She'll be at the Wisconsin Book Festival on November 11th. Period you write about covers your childhood all the way up to motherhood. When you write about your childhood and adolescence and young adulthood, are you summoning memories from the time or are these memories today of the time? Mm, probably a little bit of both. I've been in a, a, an extensive journaler since since I was in junior high, and I still have all of those journals. So I definitely peruse some of those to kind of capture those 
those moments like, was I really that dramatic or, you know, or was I, you know, exaggerating this? Cause I don't always trust my, my own memory, you know? So I went back to kind of capture, you know, 13 year old Amy versus 45 year old or 44 year old Amy, um, you know, looking back um, with, with an almost, you know, 13 year old now, you know? So I think it's definitely a combination of the two. And yet, you know, I've been kind of writing and observing most of my most of my memory, you know, so that's something that that it, that came quite easily to me. It's quite easy for the new girl, for example, to sit, kind of sit back and observe and watch and remember, you know. And I've always been um, kind of one of those nerdy A students, so um, my memory serves me quite well, when it, especially when it comes to writing. What was the inspiration for the book? The inspiration is is that simply I just love this planet. I love the weird creatures. I love the not so popular creatures. My dirty little secret is that I read actually more nature and science uh, books than I do literature. And I'm a literature professor, a literature and writing professor. And so that means I read a lot because I already read a lot of um, literature. I've just never stopped being that kid on the floor of a library fascinated and turning the pages, my mouth open and then doodling in a notebook about what I had just read. I also was that girl who, you know, I alluded to this earlier, I get so excited, I turn to the back of the book and I would never see anybody who looked like me, um, not even remotely. So for a while I start to internalize that and think, maybe Asian Americans shouldn't be writing outside, you know, I, maybe we should just stick to something else, you know, but something happened around 2016, 2015, I'd been working on this before then, but it finally kind of took shape right around the election. I just was noticing this increasing, increasing rhetoric of anything different or anything brown or anything that wasn't the status quo was viewed with such distrust, fear, and um, hatred. And I just thought, if not now to write this book that I had been thinking about for over a decade, then when, Amy, you know? And, and more than that, so it didn't start as an act of rebellion. It actually started with, with love and, it, and the book ends with love. And I, I just, going back to that statement that when you have that sense of wonderment of say the touch me not plant, which is considered a weed where my parents come from in India and the Philippines, but to, to a little girl in Chicago, that was the coolest plant ever. I just wanted to share it with other people. And it was very, I was very adamant about uh, including some illustrations also by an Asian American artist. I just thought, you know, there's so much joy and curiosity that I had about the natural world. Let's make a little room at the table for people who look like me, who have the background as, as I do, and how and what about our voices to write about the the outdoors? The very first sentence in the book makes the point that you are brown and racism is one of the subtexts of the book. Did the experience that Christian Cooper had of birding while black in Central Park a couple of months ago affect you particularly hard? You no, know, it did to an extent, and I definitely, um, you know, I'm not black, and I don't want to at all lump in my experience with that of, of black bird watchers, but I absolutely can relate to the extent of, it's not the norm for most people to see me outside, you know, with binoculars on. It's absolutely not the norm. I have been lucky enough that, you know, at 5'4", a fairly petite girl with binoculars, doesn't really inspire someone to call the police. At the same time, I know so many people of color that, that who love the outdoors and that's not the case. One of my dearest friends uh, does not feel comfortable being in the woods, period, you know, and he's 6'3", a former college football player, you know, um, and that's because the woods is very near former, um, I hope former Ku Klux Klan gathering site in central Indiana, you know, or South Central Indiana. While I absolutely can't, uh, I don't want to let my experience in with uh, the Black Bird Watchers um, and the Black in Nature movement that's happened this summer, I definitely can see that it's because of, I think, this lack of, lack of imagination, too, for people of all backgrounds to say, hey, people of all colors can be outdoors, you know? I mean, what this is, I think, a direct result of, 
of not seeing people of all backgrounds and all abilities too, you know, um, in the outdoors, you know, you begin to think, you know, in movies and TV shows, I literally did not ever see an Asian American outside, even just walking, let alone like bird watching. There was not even a, a scene in a book, a movie. And so imagine your whole childhood never, and, and, and really it rarely happens still now in 2020, but at least it's happening. Imagine your whole life of not seeing that. And that's also, it doesn't affect me just as an Asian American woman. I married a man, a white man from Kansas. It also affects white people too. You know, he is the first one to say that he never also saw anyone Asian American outside, you know, certainly not bird watching, certainly not staring at the trees or sketching. So I think that's a great, and he would also be the first one to say that that harms white people by not seeing um, the diversity in all spaces. So you begin to think, and when we have a government that wants to police so much that wants to dictate who gets to belong and when, you know, I think that's what happens when you get a situation, a really volatile situation like the Central Park Bird Watcher. And thank goodness, you know, that could have gone down in such a horrific way. Thank goodness uh, it didn't. And thank goodness there was video footage because I can promise you that that's not the first time that that's happened, you know in Central Park or in any out outdoor situation, you know? So I'm just so grateful in some ways that Christian Cooper had the, the, the wherewithal to film it so that a, a national discussion can finally, finally be, be had about it. So when the only brown person you see out hiking is your father, mm. how, how disassociative is that? Did, do you think there's something strange about your father or do you think there's something strange about the culture that doesn't realize there are other people like your father yeah you know i mean the the and this is a this is a sad result of it this is one of the sad um end results i thought there was something wrong with my father you know honestly because where were you know he was working it's not like he was a stay-at-home dad to had all this time you know um he was working and he made it a point to not only just take us outside, to be but to be knowledgeable about at the time Arizona, you know, and and um, as an immigrant from India, that's an act of love as well. You know, he could have easily just said, "Pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Let's just get to you know, be this very materialistic family to to get the job, make sure that you get in the right college and things like that." And he always encouraged us to slow down. So, in some ways, it was. That's part of the, the kind of apology is that I'd always be like, dad, nobody else is doing this. All I wanted to do was just be like my other classmates, you know? It, it's not until years later now as an adult where I think, gosh, something was wrong with the culture then that it was such a rarity to see any brown people hiking on the mountains of Camelback Mountain in, in Phoenix, you know? So yeah, it's a complicated, complex um, answer, but I look, I can only look now with so much love and so much gratefulness that I had that time with him. But as a kid, you know, and, mo and most of the time, as a, especially as a young kid, everybody thinks their dad is just uh, amazing, amazing. And I, he was just the, my whole world to me. And then through the junior high years, that's when the eye rolls began. That's when the, I'd be like, dad, I don't, you know, there might be some boys here, you know, I don't want to be seen here with, with grownups, you know, and I'm so glad that he never was daunted. He never, oh gosh, I was, I was kind of awful at some points <laughs> and, and he never was daunted by it. He was always just so gentle and kind and patient. And uh, for that, I'll always be grateful. With, with this discussion of racism as a subtext, for all your moving around, you seem really quite settled now at Ole Miss, uh, mm -hmm. which is in Oxford. And given the civil rights history of segregation and actually deadly riots to prevent James Meredith from enrolling in 1962, were you at all apprehensive about taking this job? Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, when I moved to Mississippi, it was just on the, you know, it was election year as well. So four years ago, 2016. And all of my friends in Western, in New York were saying, Amy, are you sure, you know, Mississippi? I mean, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that my perception of Mississippi was not positive. You know, it was not great. I knew that 
um, I had already known some friends in, in Oxford and I knew that they were good, progressive people, but the rest of the state, I have to be honest, I had a very, and I, and I don't mind saying it because I, I think it's important for people to hear that I had big misperceptions that people would be, um, I just thought that there would be a lot of backwards mentality in terms of race. And it turns out, ironically, that this has been one of the most progressive areas that I've ever lived in in my life. I know the state is far from perfect overall, but where I live in Oxford, Mississippi, is filled with some of the most kind-hearted and activist and progressive people I've ever seen. I compare it a lot, actually, to Madison um, in, in many good ways. You know, it's the little blue spot in a, in a red state. And is it perfect? No, by any means. We still have a Confederate statue in the middle of our town. But it's very complex history. And just in the four years that I've been here, we have uh, banned the Confederate flag, or the state flag from um, campus. We have moved the Confederate statue from campus um, or off, off the center of the main um, campus uh, entranceway. And we've changed the state flag, um, got rid of the Confederate signage, you know, that kind of thing. And that's all happened in four years. So while that might be molasses to the rest of the country, I'm aware of that. Um, the fact that that's happening in the last four years is kind of huge for the state, which is normally last in, in so many things. And yet I think there's a lot of people here I found that are sick of this and want to join want to be progressive and want to make the state as welcoming and embracing um, of people of all of backgrounds. I mean, the best thing I can, the best evidence I can offer up is that I was just supposed to be here on a, just a nine month fellowship. And after one month of being here, I turned to my husband and said, I, this is where I want to raise my family. And I would not, I've never said that about another state and I've lived all over, you know? So it's actually a place where I feel safe. I, see more Confederate flags in Western New York than I do in Northern Mississippi. And I did not feel safe um, as, a, as a person with brown skin in Western New York. And here, I, I've mentioned this before in interviews, um, this is the only place where I've lived in where people don't ask me that dreaded question while I'm at the grocery store, while I'm at the post office, that question of what are you? You know, strangers coming up to me and saying namaste as I'm crossing the street. That doesn't happen here in Mississippi. And I think it's because we've had to, they've had to have some very difficult questions and conversations about race since, since they were little. You know, when we moved here, my son was in second grade and their first field trip was to the Lorraine Hotel. Um, where um, Luther King Jr. was was assassinated. And I thought, uh, I was already a little nervous, but I thought maybe they'll do the, the seven-year-old version of what happened. No, I mean, they, they did not hold back. And all the seventh graders were a little scared, a little nervous, but I, I was so impressed with how the teachers and the, the folks at the um, Civil Rights Museum handled these really hard discussions of, of what race relations were, was like back then. So the kids here know from a young age, I dare say they know better than most of the country um, about the difficult history we've had. That's an amazing museum. You can spend a half day, I mean, spend four or five hours in the National Civil Rights Museum yeah, in Memphis and it is overwhelming. It's, it's an extraordinary experience. Oh, I'm so glad you've been there. Oh yeah. We're talking with Amy Nizuku Matatil, and her new book is World of Wonders in Praise of Fireflies, Whale Sharks, and Other Astonishments. She'll be coming to the Wisconsin Book Festival on November 11th. You mentioned Madison, and two of the essays call back to your fellowship year at the UW, most notably as the place you first encountered the aptly named corpse flower. <laughs> Did you really use the malodorous Big Stinky as an early warning system uh, to whether men would be compatible? <laughs> I did, you know, I mean, it was, it's such an easy, you know, I mean, I think you could tell, you could tell for sure, I could tell in about five minutes whether or not a date was going well or not. But the thing that was definitely a litmus test was to, was to gauge their interest in one of my interests, you know, and, and I first encountered it, you're right, at the UW Arboretum, which was an amazing resource, you know, when I lived in that, I had one magical year in Madison, and 
I didn't know that I would be getting a job. I had every intention um, and hopes. I had a job application out to Canterbury Books, my beloved Canterbury Books, which is no longer there. And I was hoping, hoping, you know, that was a really hard place to get a job, you know. Um, And all I knew is I wanted to write and I fell in love with Madison so much because you, even though it was cold so much in winter a lot, you could do so many things outside. And one of the things um, towards the end of my stay was, was encountering the corpse flower, the largest inflorescence of a flower in the universe. Um, and I had read about it, read it, read it, but this is an example until you see it and smell it, you don't really get to fully kind of experience it. And I had been to the Arboretum several times that year in Madison, but this was one of my last times before I moved away. It was it made quite an impression on me, you know, and, and from there, that's, and I'll be so grateful to the University of Wisconsin's creative writing program. That fellowship enabled me to get so much writing done, but also it gave me a chance to appreciate the outdoors in a way that I think most writers, I think we're indoors a lot, but I'd be skating out at Tenney Park. I'd grab my little, you know, um, take out Thai food and go ice skating. And I was by myself and I was so happy. I was so happy because of all that Madison had to offer. But it was that corpse flower um, that sent me on reading more about it. Looking at the internet was still mostly kind of, you know, Google searches were kind of new then. And But finding out which arboretums and which, which national botanical sites had corpse flowers. And so I, I started to have make a wish list of, of places where I could go and track them down. And I had tracked them down for about 10 years, you know, so that was 2000 when I lived in Madison. And uh, I had, oh my goodness, almost near 20 years for actually. And uh, that's been my favorite flower, you know, and I could, you could tell in five minutes, if you start mentioning the corpse flower, which is, you know, the inflorescence is about eight feet tall. And of course it has that famous uh, stink. And, um, you know, you describe, I described the, the, flower, it's the bloom itself as um, dark purple, almost like a blood red. And if you see a guy's eyes glaze over, <laughs> you know, it was so easy to be like, well, next, you know, because if you're not going to be interested in five minutes of the corpse flower, we have nothing to talk about, honestly. <laughs> and, um, you know, and again, it doesn't mean that a guy has to have the same interest as me. But if that, if somebody didn't find that interesting, that a, that an inflorescence of a flower could be eight feet tall, and didn't just get astonished by that, I really didn't. No matter how good looking they were, I had no interest in that person. <laughs> that just means we couldn't have a conversation, really, you know. And and the person I eventually married, he absolutely was not interested in corpse flowers, but found it so fascinating, and more than that, wanted to see them with me, you know? Um, so yeah, it's no surprise among other th- reasons that that was the man I married. <laughs> the other way of Madison features is you talk about walking around Lake Mendota, talking to birds. Yes. <laughs> is that something you still do? And which birds are the best conversationalists? Oh, uh, you know, the easiest ones for me. Yeah. So, so I mentioned I was alone a lot and a lot of times people think, oh gosh, you were so, you must've been so lonely in Wisconsin. And absolutely, it was not the, it was the most, uh, I just think for, for making art, for writing, Madison was just such a, a whirlwind adventure. I, maybe I'm looking back on it with such rose-colored glasses, but you could have conversation, you can meet people, you can go, well, pre-pandemic, you could um, go to any art gallery, walk downtown and just always find so much wonderful art and music. And yet you could also be alone outside in the, the outdoors and take beautiful walks all around the lake. Um, you could paddle boat <laughs> to your heart's content. You know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but I just love that, that place um, so much. And I guess I would just say um, it, was, it was cardinals. Cardinals are the easiest for me. It's at least for the easiest for me to mimic their sounds. And I'm no ornithologist. But um, I could do that when, pe- you know, when people were in around, as I didn't want to get the stairs, I would absolutely have conversations with cardinals and, and some of them would actually kind of follow me. And, you know, my friends would say that they would call me Snow White, you know, um, but they never heard my, they would just be like, Amy, animals are always following you. And, but I never let them see me talking with them or doing my bird calls. You know, I just, 
it was just a thing I, I knew that I'd be made fun of, or it's, it's like kind of a nerdy party trick. And I mentioned in the book, I even kept it from my husband until one day he came home and, and heard me. Um, so yeah, so again, I've, I've joked with, I have some terrific ornithologist friends, um, Dr. Drew Lanham over here at Clemson University. You know, I think he he's bemused, but my bird calls are nothing like what Audubon declares them to be. But all I can say is the proof is there. Um, they work, you know. There's cardinals that come to our backyard here in Mississippi after I call them. And uh, I have no idea what I'm telling them. <laughs> and sometimes they seem agitated. Sometimes they seem very calm and collected. <laughs> now, would it be undue pressure to ask you to, to give us a cardinal call? Oh. <laughs> But I could do a, I could do a little bit. Sure. Yeah, could you give us a cardinal? Okay. Now, any scientists or ornithologists, I don't need you calling in and don't yell at Stu for this. All I can say is that this is works for me. It may not work for you, but so I just say the words hurdy gurdy, and then just in a high pitched sound. So I go hurdy gurdy hurdy gurdy hurdy 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 gurdy 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 hurdy gurdy. And then it works. I can't believe you got me to do that, Stu. But um, but after a while, as long as there's cardinals in the area, they'll start coming close. They might be a little bit, you know, dubious, like what's going on here? What's going on? But if you stay still enough, stay close, stay, you know, don't flail your arms around and stuff, you'll soon have cardinals um, at your feet. Well, I've got a couple of cardinal families in the backyard that I that I, I feed. I haven't talked to them yet, so, <laughs> so later on I'll, I'll replay the conversation. The our conversations <laughs> gather at, at the at the laptop. Good. Uh, speaking of, of your writing and what you learned at the institute, your MFA is in both nonfiction and poetry. You're primarily known as a poet. This book is all prose and essays, was there a constraint? Did you feel a constraint in having to observe the line breaks of a poem uh, that you wanted to break free from to capture what you needed to capture in these essays? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I think it was something, I don't know how conscious it was, but around the 2016 election, um, I had, uh, I, was, I was working on what I thought were poems about the the outdoors, about the about animals and plants that I loved, and then I realized I was just tired of the line breaks. I called it the tyranny of the line breaks. I didn't want to have to worry about oh, I need to create tension here, break the line. You know, I wanted I can so I love both genres, um, and I can breathe in both genres. But I feel like with these essays, and they're still short. Nothing here is over five pages. But I just felt like I could fully exhale a little bit more with the essay, I could explore. I had so many questions that I couldn't kind of fit with the, the natural compression that I do when writing poetry. And uh, I was just grateful for that space. And once I realized that, that, oh, these are gonna be essays, it was natural. I had over 200 and I narrowed it down to 30 of my favorite. It was, if anything, it was hard to kind of cull it down, but I wanted it to be the 30 that I just felt the strongest about and, and not necessarily the weirdest, strangest animals. You'll see that I wrote about something like the monarch butterfly, which most people know about, but then something like the axolotl, the Mexican salamander, you know, um, that maybe not so many people know about. I wanted it to be accessible to people and also feel like I'm injecting a little bit of, of magic, a little bit of wonderment about the outdoors to them. So even the kind of the, the stodgiest ornithologist or stodgiest uh, marine biologist might find, oh, I didn't know that, or I'd never, I didn't, I, I couldn't put that metaphor together until you did, you know? So my hope, and I also hope that someone who was maybe far removed from reading could also pick this up and say, oh gosh, I, I've just been feeling so terrible about the world and this planet, and it's hard to have any sense of grace or joy anymore, frankly. And then hopefully when they open this book, they'll see little little bits of, of kind of, you know, a pushback to that, to that kid, that seven-year-old kid who, who didn't have to be taught wonder, who just had it already. In terms of conveying a sense of wonder, one of the things that really supplements that or complements that are these really enchanting illustrations by Fumimini Nakamura. Why illustrations instead of photographs? And why was it important that the illustrations be by an Asian American? 
Yeah, uh, thank you so much for asking that. You know, I wanted to do kind of a nod back to those books, again, those books from the 60s and 70s that I read again on the floor of the library just because I, I was just sitting there cross-legged with piles of books around the dear librarians never, you know, they just let me be. And that was kind of a callback to the book style that I grew up loving so much. There would be like kind of a botanical illustration with maybe one spot color and that's it. And I didn't know that that was a style that could even be recreated until we had this amazing designer that works with Milkweed Books. And, you know, I think part of my hope with this is that, again, just as hungry as I was to find any books by a woman, even let alone an Asian American woman, I wanted the view, if I'm, if these are the views, uh, these are the memories and observations of someone who is Asian American, I wanted the visuals to also be someone Asian American. And that's not, you know, Fumi and I have actually never met. We only have corresponded. And yet she seemed to have the exact vision and she read my essays and I, I wanted it to be biologically accurate with maybe 2% wonder in there, or 2% whimsy in there. And I think she captured it perfectly. I, I, I think she just hit it out of the ballpark with that. And it, you know, and I want people like my white husband as a kid who was reading nature books to, to see like, oh, there's more than one voice out there. There's more than one kind of artist out there. And it's equally important for someone who's Latino or Asian American to see like, oh, you know, there's other voices out there that can write about the outdoors. So I'm not writing just for Asian Americans or brown people. I'm writing for for everyone to see, you know, just to show that there's a, there's more, it's 2020, this is not 1955. There should be more people of all abilities um, writing about the outdoors, um, especially when we're in such a climate crisis right now. Why, rest why restrict it to one type of person, you know, um, who gets to write about it? On the matter of the climate crisis, a number of the essays have a larger environmental theme. The southern cassowary is dying because of humans. Fireflies have dwindled. The octopus knows we're destroying the ocean. No one can tell the difference between an oak leaf and, and a maple leaf. Are you more hopeful or fearful about our environmental future? Mm. It's... <laughs> We'll see. If you ask me in about another week and a half, I'll, tell, I'll give a more yeah, answer. Put, a, put that one on hold. Put that one yeah, on put hold. Put that one on hold. I think I've had kind of an anxiety about our environmental future for a long time now. I, ha I will have more hope if it turns out this country picks a candidate who seems to at least even acknowledge climate change is, on, is happening. I love science, so it's very disturbing that some leaders, frankly, don't believe in science. And I think I ultimately, though, have to come down on the side of hope and, and love, because if we don't have that, um, then we've truly lost, I think. And it's hard. It is a daily practice to wake up and feel um, positive or feel, um, feel like you can make a difference. But... I kind of, I kind of have to, I can't be, the alternative is to give up and to let, to let people without visions of a future for this planet win. And I, I can't, I can't. As it is said in Lamentations, where there is no vision, the people perish. Mm, yes, yes. You mentioned that you spent a year studying whale sharks. Mm. How much research did you do for the book and how many rabbit holes did you go down? Oh, so many, so many. I mean, I, so I ended up writing poems about whale sharks, writing several essays about whale sharks. And then one of the essays uh, made it into the book, but there was about four essays about whale sharks, about a dozen poems. So I wrote a lot. The one I included in the book was the one that surprised me the most. And that is, I love, this is my favorite shark on the planet. I had saved up enough money to be able to go snorkeling with the shark in uh, Atlanta. I had definitely expectations that were one way and they were absolutely different after my experience, you know? So that's probably the most complex of all the essays in the book, one of the most complex ones of all the essays in the book, because while I was so grateful to finally meet face-to-face, -face, literally 
one of the my biggest loves on this planet, <laughs> literally, <laughs> again, it was not at all what I expected. I thought this essay that I was going to write was going to be um, about the majesty and the wonderment and la la la. I came face to face with my own. I could see almost a vision of myself in the in the whale shark's eyes. And afterwards, you know, I mentioned without giving too much away, after I had that snorkeling experience, I actually wept because I realized too that, you know, these, these sharks are bigger than a school bus and there was five of them in this tank. And there's no tank big enough for five whale sharks to be swimming, no matter. And I, it was very hard for me to write because I know the Georgia Aquarium does so many good things and so many rehabilitations and so many, so much research for the good of animals. And yet, like you could believe two things. I could believe that and also realize five whale sharks should be in the ocean, period. So yes, yeah, so that that was complex. That was complex to write about because again, I I had that experience. I was one of those people, and now I I wish so bad that they didn't have those, and they still have snorkeling packages or scuba diving packages, where you can be up close with a whale shark, but they're in a tank. So I feel really sad about it. And the shark that I, the main shark that I had an encounter with, um, died, and yet. I am who I am in large part because of zoos and aquariums that my parents took me to where I could see these animals and be inspired and be in awe of them and be astonished by them. But I think it's worth at least noting questions about which animals really shouldn't be a part of that, you know, and whale sharks for me is one of them. There, there's a balance in the essays between some of them are very lighthearted and, and uplifting, but some are so poignant as to be heartbreaking. Uh, the teacher who insulted your not mm -hmm. choosing an American animal to draw, the octopus who died, the chrysalis that never hatched, uh, wanting to blend into your surroundings like a patu bird. Why was it important to put in those fairly sad memories to balance the, the happiness of, of the, this, the field of fireflies? Yeah. Oh, such a great question. You know, I mean, I think it's, I don't know how purposeful it was other than the fact that it was real. It's about as real. This book is as real as I, I put everything I, I am into this book. So many of my life experiences, and they're not all pleasant. They're not all rose color. They're not all, um, everything's fine and dandy. You know, I recognize there's a good part of this is, um, privilege that I was able to travel a lot so much. And I know that not everybody has that. And yet I didn't want to come off as maybe some of the nature writing that I grew up reading uh, as much as I love Thoreau. It also seems so distant, like who could be alone, you know, alone and um, at the edge of Walden Pond. And then it turns out later we find out, oh, his mother was doing his laundry and cooking <laughs> for him, you know? Oh yeah, but that wasn't mentioned. So a lot of it was so um, inspiring that I read, but it also didn't, it also seems so much at a distance, like that was never even possible. So my hope is to show that, again, human experience is complex. I would, it would be an absolute lie if I just collected a bunch, and I could have done that. I don't think it would have been very interesting, but if I collected just the most positive rose color, rosy experiences of my childhood that happened to be outdoors, that would have been a very different book. And conversely, if I just combined, you know, gathered all the negative ones. But the reality is, is that there are some moments of loneliness. There are some moments of my family experiencing racism. And there's so much exuberance and joy and enthusiasm as well. So the best thing I can do when I was saying like, oh, how do I order this? You know, the best thing I, I could figure out is to just put it all in and to not, you know, because I don't really, there's a lot of my high school friends who read this and they were like, Amy, I didn't know you were eating lunch in a bathroom stall. You know, I mean, that's for the first time that's, they encountered that story from my book. You know, it's not something I'm proud of and I'm kind of embarrassed by it, you know, um, but it's real. It's as real as I can get. And I wanted, regardless what your experience was, I'm hoping that when you finish this book, people feel a little bit less lonely in the world the way I did when I had um, these experiences outside. Finally, given all your moving around, 
where have you enjoyed living the most, not in terms of what's going on in your life, but in terms of being outdoors, where, where have you enjoyed the outdoors the most? You know, well, I, I do enjoy the outdoors here in Mississippi, just the sheer number of birds, but I have to say um, there's something, and it's very different now. The The suburban Phoenix area of the 80s is so different now. I went not too long ago, and even just the sheer number of stars you can see has decreased, but in the 80s, before Phoenix just became this behemoth area, you could on clear nights just go a little bit outside the city limits and the stars at night were incredible. I mean, and, and we didn't have a super complicated telescope. It was a very kind of inexpensive model and you could see divots on the moon. You could see Saturn's rings. It was so clear. And I just, I love that heat. So, I, you know, it's funny when I, I can remember still very poignantly, it'd be 108, 112, and we were still outside, you know? I mean, definitely my parents made sure we weren't outside. You know, they, they always say like between 12 and three, try not to be outside. But us kids, that's how we, we just rode our, it was a whole different time too. So we would ride our bikes go climbing in, in these rock formations that had cactus nearby if you fell. So it just, and then someone, one of us always had a pool. And I want to make a note for the listeners out there, almost everyone in Phoenix has a pool. So this is not a plea, a childhood of, of enormous privilege. This is like middle-class suburban Phoenix. Almost everybody has a pool out there. Didn't you miss the seasons? I didn't. I didn't. I loved, it was normal to see Christmas lights wrapped around saguaros. I don't know. And I, I love being able to trick or treat in t-shirt or whatever, you know, short sleeve costume. And um, yeah, near Tucson, I was just in um, at the University of Arizona not too long ago in the desert botanical gardens, just the sheer number of birds and flowers that are out there. Oh, uh, yeah. I swoon thinking about um, childhood growing up in Arizona. I mean, we were outdoors basically 12 months of the year. In northern Mississippi, it's super humid, but again, there's so much sunshine and green here. The, the, the highways are filled with kudzu, and it's just, it becomes this almost surreal looking place. Like it looks like topiaries all over, um, but it's really um, trees and shrubs covered in kudzu. Um, anyway, so I love being able to be outside here most of the year as well. I'm afraid that was all the time we had with Amy Nizukumatatil. Again, the book is World of Wonders, in praise of fireflies, whale sharks, and other astonishments. Next week, an all-new show with a legendary figure from the counterculture, the intrepid traveler himself, Ken Babs, for a conversation about his new book, Cronies, Adventures with Ken Kesey, Neil Cassidy, The Merry Pranksters, and The Grateful Dead. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Shally Pittman, Engineer Chuck Cademan, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Walding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-supported community radio.